Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Norma Walden, a program coordinator of the club's International Relations Forum. We also welcome our online and radio listeners, and we invite our audience to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Our speaker this evening, Vice Admiral Charles Martolio, is retired from the U.S. Navy and is an advisor, speaker, lecturer, and mentor to a variety of organizations, including the U.S. government. Admiral Martolio spent about half his military career at sea in cruisers, destroyers, and aircraft carriers, including command of the Ronald Reagan Aircraft Carrier Strike Group. He spent the other half of his military career formulating strategy and policy, initially for the U.S. Navy, then for all U.S. military forces. He has served in Asia, the Middle East, and most recently in Europe as the Deputy Commander of all U.S. military forces in Europe, Eurasia, and Israel. He is an expert in strategy development, operations planning, and international relations. He has significant first-hand experience working with issues relative to both Asia and Europe. Charlie, as he likes to be called, is a 1978 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and a 2001 graduate of the U.S. Naval War College, where he finished with highest distinction, earning a master's degree in national security and strategic studies. I'm pleased to also welcome his wife, Darlene Martolio. She is with him in an audience this evening, and they live in Coronado, California. Now it is my pleasure and honor to welcome Vice Admiral Charlie Martolio. His topic will be America and the Great Power Competition. Thank you, Norma. Thank you, Norma, for that very kind introduction. I am delighted to be here tonight because the topic we're going to talk about, America and the great power competition, is so relevant to everything you see going on in the world today. Today is the 70th anniversary of the NATO alliance. Two weeks ago, you had Chinese President Xi in Italy and in France. You have all the NATO foreign ministers in Washington as we sit here this evening. You have the G7 foreign ministers meeting in Europe as we sit here. These are all piece parts of how the great powers are interacting with each other now. And what we're going to do for about the next 45 minutes is we're going to look at how great powers interact with each other, and we're going to do that through three different prisms. The first prism are the elements of national power, how nations actually influence each other in the course of day-to-day events. And the elements of national power are economic, diplomatic, military, and informational. Economic, diplomatic, military, and informational. Those are the levers that leaders use to try to influence other countries. And of those four levers, which do you think is the most important? Yeah, yeah, the economic element by far. Because if you don't have a strong economy underpinning everything else, you can't be a strong military power or diplomatic power or even exercise informational power. So that economic piece is so critical to that first prism that we're going to look through this evening. The second prism we're going to look through is the spectrum of engagement. The spectrum of engagement is is how do you actually engage other nations? 
cooperatively on one side, competitively in the middle, and with conflict on the far end. And of course, as national security practitioners, our job is to keep to the left side of the spectrum of engagement, cooperation and competition. As Americans, we're not afraid of competition. We've done pretty well in a competitive world. You want to make sure that you don't get into the conflict regime unless vital national interests are at stake. So that's the second prism that we'll look through. Cooperation, competition, and conflict. And the third prism that we're going to look through is knowledge, common sense, and pragmatism. One of the things I'd like to stress this evening is how important it is that people that are involved in national security affairs and international relations understand the complexity of the issues that they're dealing with. Because as I think you'll see, and you probably already know by virtue of the fact that you're here and you're interested in this topic, these are incredibly complex issues that we're going to look at tonight. So that knowledge component is so important to people vested in making national security decisions. And if you don't know it yourself, you've got to be willing to reach out and listen to subject matter experts who really do understand the complexity of the issues. The second part of this prism is common sense. I put common sense up there because one of the things I don't do is I don't talk politics. I don't talk right. I don't talk left. I like to think that I come at things from a a practitioner's perspective, exercising common sense as you look at the options based on knowledge of the issues. And then lastly, pragmatism. Can you actually execute in the real world the things you're talking about on a PowerPoint slide? Because if you can't execute it in the real world, it's not worth very much. So those are the three prisms that we're going to look at our issues today. Elements of national power, economic, diplomatic, military, and informational. The spectrum of engagement cooperation, competition, conflict, and then the importance of knowledge, exercising common sense, and being pragmatic, the ability to actually get things done. Norma was kind enough to take us right to my first slide, even before I pushed the button. And she may not even realize she did that. You know, one of the things I never do is I never cover all the material I bring. And so the way I get around that, because I know we all have time constraints, if you remember nothing else from what I'm going to say over the next 45 minutes, or if I don't get to it, these are the things I ask you to take away from today's discussion. The first is that the security environment of the 21st century is going to be characterized by America versus China and Russia. And neither China nor Russia in this environment will be a friend. In China's case, China will be America's strongest competitor. But look to brinksmanship, not conflict, as the manifestation of that relationship. There will be tension, there will be intense competition, we'll get close, but both nations will realize just how much is at stake and won't cross that conflict Rubicon. Unless there's miscalculation, and that's always very, very difficult 
to account for. But again, as national security practitioners, you've got to work that into your calculus as you look at the various options to make sure that what you're doing isn't open to misinterpretation. And I like to say that Asia is America's to lose, not China's to win. Because we have these incredible alliances that we've been working for 70 years now with nations that are entirely vested in the way the world currently works. And for China to be able to disrupt that, we have to help them do that. So Asia is ours to lose, not China's to win. We go in in a strong position in Asia. We need to preserve what we have intelligently. Russia is a nation in decline. We'll talk about some of the specifics. Russia is a problem to be managed, not one in a military context because they are already a nation in decline. They're dangerous. When an animal is wounded, it becomes more dangerous. They have high technology, and they are the only existential threat to America with weapons of mass destruction. So we need to pay attention to the relationship, but we don't need to overreact, because with the Russian relationship... Time is on our side, not the Russians. That gives us the luxury of not having to act precipitously in the international dimension with Russia. As I said at the beginning with the economic element of national power, our economy, America's economy, is the key to its future. And I'll point out a couple things that are important, too. Economic is the cornerstone, but our alliances, our alliance structure is critical as well. Our allies, our NATO allies, the 29 members of NATO, Japan, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, these are all treaty allies of the United States. And we do need to do some hardening of America. How do you harden America? Things like ballistic missile defense, border security, however it's defined, cyber defenses, protecting critical infrastructure, our transportation networks, our financial networks, our uh, electricity distribution networks, those sorts of things that we have to harden because America is no longer surrounded by a moat that adversaries cannot reach. And so we need to take some very, very pragmatic and logical steps to harden America because this isn't the security environment of 30 or 40 or 50 years ago where we had these two giant oceans and all sorts of space between us and potential adversaries. As you'll see, great power challenges, they are already underway. We need to act wisely and not precipitously, but we do need to act now because the relative power between nations is changing and not to America's advantage. So if we are going to try to preserve the security environment that we like, Now is the time to act because the relative power between nations is changing. And then even if I don't get to all the stuff in the middle, I'll close with my last slide. The last slide says America's position in the world is likely to endure for generations to come because America, separate from all the political games that are going on today is an incredibly robust nation where America leads the world in every element of national power and the robustness of that national power 
when you add all of those independent factors together, no other nation in the world comes close to having that collection of national power that America does. And it's not going to change in the foreseeable future. And we'll talk about that at the, at the very end. So if you take nothing away from our discussion this evening, those are the points that I'd ask you to take away. And now we will press into why I make those assertions. This is what we're talking about today, the great power competition. And mostly what we're talking about, as we look at the column called the competitors, America and our allies versus the near peers, Russia and China. There are other security issues that are out there, to be sure. Some characterize them as the rogues, Iran and North Korea, or the transnational threat, things like terror, cyber, and crime. Security issues that are not bounded by national boundaries. Today we're going to talk about America and our allies and the near peers, China and Russia. The arena where this great power competition is going on, geography, the geography of the world. You know, some people said in today's environment, the value of geography is lessened because you have things like the cyber domain, where there are no national boundaries, where you don't even need to be a state actor, where individuals with malign intent can generate strategic effects, either through massive cyber attacks or through use of weapons of mass destruction. I, on the other hand, say geography still counts. He who holds geography, he who controls geography, controls industry, controls business, controls people, all of the things that you need to do to make a society function are geography-based. So yes, there's a change in how you can think about the time-space continuum around geography, but geography is still important. And it is still America and China and Russia in the geographical confines that you think of those nations. But in addition to geography, the competition is taking place in the international domains as well. What are the international domains? International waters, international airspace, space, and cyberspace. All domains where the competition is currently taking place that are not geography-constrained. So it's more than geography. Geography still counts, but a lot of the competition now is taking place in the international domains. The economic systems. Are we looking at free market economic systems like the world has been driving towards for the last 70 years? Or are we looking for some sort of state capitalism where governments control economies? Because when you look at America and the Allies versus Russia and China, you are talking about different economic systems. They're not complementary economic systems. Just like the fourth bullet, governance types, they are different governance types. You have free democracies, and you have authoritarian governments. Governments that use a variety of techniques to ensure that the population stays under control because they are not elected governments by the people. And the prize prize for whoever wins the great power competition is security. But is security the end unto itself? It really isn't. Security is a prerequisite for prosperity. You can't be prosperous and have significant security issues. So you've got to make sure that you tee yourself up for a future that is secure 
so that you can be economically prosperous. And then that prosperity gives you global influence. And that global influence takes you back to the ability to increase your security, which then makes you more prosperous or gives you the potential to be more prosperous because you're more secure and you can allocate resources more intelligently. So you can see, as we get into this great power competition, just this, there are lots of piece parts to this, but the prize really is about the prosperity of our nation and like-minded nations around the world. And, as the banner at the bottom says, the great power competition is already underway. Sometimes I never get beyond this slide because there's so much on it. But I only want to make two points on this slide, and then we'll move on. You know, you all are relatively smart in what's going on in the world, or you wouldn't be here. This slide, which I update on a weekly basis, shows the things that are going on today around the world. Every one of those issues up there is significant unto themselves. And every one of those issues up there is related to two or three or four or five other issues such that you cannot fix a single issue in isolation without impacting other issues that are up there. And this knowledge component that I talked about earlier is so important because you must know how those issues interreact in order to come up with solutions that work in the real world. And what you come away with when you look at the complexity of the issues, the numbers of the issues, and the fact that the issues interact with each other, there are no easy solutions to the issues that are listed on this slide. This is a hard problem set that national leadership faces trying to keep the world on the cooperation and competition end of that spectrum of engagement and keep the world out of the conflict regime. And you can see how hard it is and how important that knowledge component is. Let's talk a little bit about China. I'm only going to cover a couple things on this slide because I'm already going through a fair amount of time. The first prism that you look at when you're talking about China is to determine what the Chinese government is going to do, determine what is best for the Communist Party of China, the CCP. I don't use that term pejoratively. I say Communist Party of China because that's the government of China. The number one determinant for all Chinese policy is how does it play in support of the Communist Party of China? Because that is the most important perspective from the view of the Chinese leadership, preserving the longevity of the Communist Party of China. And that's in jeopardy right now. You may not know that because of all of the press or discussion that's held about how China is this unstoppable juggernaut. And I'm not saying the Chinese economy is not impressive. It is impressive. But for the first time ever, the Chinese government, the Communist Party of China, is having trouble living up to the agreement they have with their governed class. And that agreement is a simple handshake. It is... If you allow me to govern uncontested, I will give you a better standard of living every single year. And for the first 30 years, say from 2010 back to 1980, 
the Communist Party of China really lived up to that handshake with their people. Every year you were looking at very high gross domestic product growth inside of China. The low-hanging fruit was long picked. And China now is having problems living up to that handshake with their people. And you know, my title of this slide is China Growing Stronger, but it could also be what keeps President Xi, the Chinese president, awake at night? His inability to live up to the handshake that he has with his people. The middle income trap, if any of you are Uh, economists. The middle income trap is where China finds itself today. The middle income trap is what keeps middle income countries from becoming great economic powers. And all four parts are in play in China today. It is an increasing labor wage rate. You have to pay more to people to do the same thing. I look around the audience, and this will resonate with some people. When I was young, made in Japan meant cheap. Not so anymore, right? The Japanese economy grew, and the labor wage rate went up in Japan. And what happened to those low manufacturing jobs? They went to South Korea. They went to Taiwan. Until their labor wage rate grew. And then they went to China. Now China's labor wage rate is growing and the, lab- and the, uh, the low manufacturing jobs are moving to Southeast Asia. So this is a very natural thing that goes on in economics as pay scales go up as societies get richer. China also has a shrinking demographic pool. China has till about 2030, about 10 years from now, to cement their position in the world, or demographically, they won't be able to get to the leadership position that they want. President Xi is a very smart person. He knows this. The clock is ticking for China. What's this demographic challenge they have? What caused it? The one-child policy. They inflicted this onto themselves 30 years ago. And it is a demographic notch. It is a dearth of people to do stuff that will never go away as it moves across the timeline for China. And in 2030, their pyramid starts to invert where there are more people drawing out than putting in. Now, you can counteract the labor wage rate and the demographic trend with productivity improvements and innovation. Innovation, another word for building things that the world wants. Productivity, you all know what productivity is. So how many people here think today's competition between the United States and America is really about the trade imbalance? It's, it's not. It's a small part It's a small part. The competition between America and China today, it's about the technological future. It's about high tech. It's about artificial intelligence. It's about quantum computing. It's about nanotechnology. Why? Because whoever controls that technology, whether they want to or not, will de facto control much of the world. Why do I say that? Even if you don't want to, you are the country or you are the people that are writing the rule sets that govern the technology. Whether you're talking subroutines, programs, capabilities, or laws, you're the person who's deciding whether this technology will be user-friendly whether you can use it or whether I don't trust you to use it. Even if I want to be benevolent, those sorts of characteristics are embedded in the technology. And whoever controls the technology is going to have that power over the rest of the world. 
And this competition needs to be decided by when? Roughly 2030. That's why China has so much vested in this competition with America right now, because this really is about the future of the way the world is going to work together or not work together, and how that technology is going to be applied. One of the ways it's applied, have you heard of the Chinese social credit score? Yeah, kind of a fascinating concept, isn't it? What do you need to be able to really do the social credit score? Social credit score says, I've got this big data capability. Everything that you do, your health records, your financial records, every keystroke you make on the internet, who you talk to, who your relatives are, how reliable your relatives are, what parties you belong to, what your uh, uh, social life is like, I, the government, know all this. And based on this, because I have a big data capability, based on this, I assign you a social, a social credit score. Based upon that social credit score, you can live in a building, not live in a building, join a club, not join a club, leave the city, not leave the city, leave the country, not leave the country, And you combine that with facial recognition, and now I can tell you have a low social credit score. You should not be in Beijing. Why are you pointing to me? Well, because I like to personalize it with people, if you haven't noticed. That's what this technology allows you to do. And so as you look at what President Xi is doing, President Xi is putting the protections in place so that if the people ever start to get uncomfortable with the way he's not able to live up to his handshake to grow the economy year on year and give them better prosperity, the protections are already in place to preserve the Communist Party of China. And this transition the Chinese are trying to make from a, I'll use a big string of words, then I'll explain them. Debt-fueled infrastructure investment. Debt-fueled infrastructure investment. means borrowing money to build things. Buildings, bridges, highways, apartments. That's a big component of the Chinese economic miracle. And exports. That's what they've been doing borrowing money to build things, and exporting. President Xi, again, knowing he's got to shift the economic focus to consumerism. Instead of exporting all this stuff, because their labor wage rate now is growing, their people are wealthier, I want them to buy into my own economy. I want them to become consumers. So what the Chinese make, the Chinese people buy. Consumerism and services. That's the shift that President Xi is trying to make with the Chinese economy. And what are the things that the Chinese people want? Do they want bridges, buildings, and highways? No. They want health care, food they can trust, and education that is good. That's what that Chinese middle class is looking for, that President Xi wants to make sure that every year they feel like they're living a better life. And I'm going to just cut to the bottom now of the slide. My wife actually helped me think up this little pithy comment at the bottom of the slide. You know, in metallurgy, there's two types of metal, ductile metal and brittle metal. Ductile metal, as I apply force to it, I watch it deflect, and it deflects, and it deflects, and it deflects, and it deflects, and then it breaks. But I know it's going to break. Why? Because I'm watching it deflect. Brittle, on the other hand, you, you increase the force on the metal. You increase the force, you incre- and nothing happens. Nothing happens. You don't see anything, and then it snaps. Brittleness in China. Everything's fine until it isn't. And that's how I think of China. 
You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. I want to take just a second and show how you can think about this cooperation, competition, and conflict spectrum of engagement. And as national security practitioners, it's critical that people like me, you know, you rack and you stack all the places where your interests interact. And you look, where can you cooperate? So that even during times of intense competition and conflict, if there are areas where your interests overlap, you can still cooperate. And that's so important, especially in today's environment, because that cooperation is often where you're actually maintaining contact with the competitor, and it's a shock absorber to the relationship. So cooperation is a good thing on multiple levels, and even in troubled relationships, you want your national security practitioners to be looking for places where national interests overlap and you can cooperate, even while intense competition is going on. Talk quickly about Russia. Russia is getting weaker by the day. Russia's gross domestic product is less than the gross domestic product of the state of California. You need to think about that in terms of the overwhelming advantage America has vis-a-vis Russia. Political challenges. Traditional Russian response, more authoritarianism. We're starting to see this over the last three or four years now from President Putin. Less tolerance of disagreement, less freedom for people, more controls over finances, over the Internet. A fair number of military conflicts, which are fairly unpopular inside of Russia because they're fiscally draining. And while they started out very popular, as word gets back about fatalities, casualties, the use of the military, the abuse of the military, they become increasingly unpopular. And this whole idea of of nationalism, you know, somebody asked me once, what's the difference between nationalism and patriotism? Aren't they the same thing? My answer was, no, they're not. They may seem to be the same, but patriotism is something that bubbles from the individual up. It's a, it's a, it's a swelling of pride that we each feel innately, or many people feel innately, as opposed to nationalism, which is a tool for leadership to whip up discontent against something but it's controlled by the government. The danger with nationalism is it's a very easy valve to open, but once it's open, it's really difficult to close. Because as you start to close, as the leadership starts to close it, they may appear weak to their own people. And we've already talked about the position penalty that authoritarian governments are in because they're not duly elected by the people. So this is a real concern when people like President Putin really play this nationalism card because you've got to keep stoking it. You've got to keep feeding that nationalism. And you could find yourself either doing things that you really don't want to do, but you have to, or not being able to do things that you know are right because you can't. So when you play that nationalism card, you really have to be careful. 
And then the economic hardship. So there's political challenges, military conflicts, economic hardship in Russia, in part because of the sanctions, but mostly because of oil prices. Interestingly, the Russian people allow the government to balance the budget on their backs. They accept a lower quality of life. Why? Because part of the Russian psyche, and with reasonable cause, is this idea of imminent invasion. If you look back over the last thousand years, the number of times Russia has either been invaded to Russia's detriment or Russia invaded into their periphery to build a buffer so that core Russia was protected. This is part and parcel of every Russian psyche. And so the Russian people, to a point, are willing to allow the government to suffer this economic hardship in order to preserve the security that the government says Russia needs in today's environment. So it says Russia getting weaker because of, I list the reasons, but beware of the wounded bear. Wounded animals make mistakes. We always need to be cognizant of that as we deal with the Russians. Russia's people issues. Again, I won't go over this entire slide, but you know, that top bullet there, 148 million people today, When it was the Soviet Union, it was about 290 million people. How many people in America? Yeah, about 330, 340 million people. So rough parity with the Soviet Union. 148 million today in Russia. Population in decline in the next 30 years, a relatively short period of time. will decline to 133 million. 148 million people across how many time zones in Russia? 13 time zones. That's a big country. Inverted age pyramid. I'll just, last thing I'll talk about on this slide here, because you can read the rest of it. You can't make this stuff up. One of the reasons why President Putin is increasingly unpopular today as compared to three or four or five months ago is some newly passed social security legislation, pension legislation, which says men who used to be able to collect their pension at 60 now have to wait till they're 65. What's the average male mortality rate in Russia? 64.9 years. President Putin has some real demographic challenges, real leadership challenges, real intellectual challenges in the people because the brain drain. And every issue challenges President Putin's ability to hold things together. And we, as America, don't want a balkanized Russia. Too dangerous. Again, in interest of brevity, I'm just going to show you that you can develop a slide with the spectrum of engagement that shows where can you cooperate, where are you going to compete. And then again, for, for leaders, for practitioners of national security, so important to know what the adversary's red lines are. Because you don't want to stray into those by mistake. Doesn't mean you can't go there if your vital national interests are at stake, but you don't want to go there unless they are. And as our current ambassador in Moscow, an experienced ambassador, John Huntsman, said, Russia is about the long game. So what about this China-Russia strategic alliance? On the left side of the slide are six bullets that favors cooperation between China and Russia. Things like shared concern over U.S. actions, what the Chinese get from the Russians, what the Russians get from the Chinese. But many people forget that there are an equal number of suspicions between the two countries. One day Russia will wake up and find China, for all intents and purposes, is running Russia's Far East. 
economically at least. Russia, which doesn't want to uh, conquer the world like the Soviet Union did, but they do want a peripheral buffer around Russia for their defensive purposes. They've been playing along with China's Belt and Road Initiative, but China's Belt and Road Initiative goes through the Russian periphery. Eventually, that will cause a rub between China and Russia. Russia supports India and Vietnam, who are two of China's biggest competitors. So I I won't go through each of these, but you can see the idea. There is near-term convergence between Russia and China, but that doesn't mean it's going to be mid to long term. I can't finish up without at least talking a little bit about India, because India is such an important player in the security environment of the 21st century. And what I've tried to array here are the challenges for an Indian, U.S., other freedom-loving nation, democracy alignments, and the rationale why this is a good idea. There are big internal issues inside of India. You can see them there. India does have ties to Russia. India always wants more than the U.S. is willing to give. They're wary of ties with the U.S. But the economic growth potential, India's economy is growing faster than China's now at a lower level because there's still low-hanging fruit. But it is the fastest-growing economy in the world today. They do distrust China, and they share a border with China, and they contest that border. They do look east to engage. This is their look, this is the Indian look east policy, which includes the U.S. And they like America's hardening views towards Pakistan and China. And U.S. and Indian views are complementary on Indian Ocean security. I think I'm going to do two more slides, and then I'm going to just stop and take questions because I know I'm running out of time. I told you that I think alliances are so important to the future security environment for America. And what I've tried to do is array some rationale as to why. You know, we, we all generally agreed that of the elements of national power, the economic element is the most important. And what I show on this slide here are America and our allies, Russia by itself, China by itself, and then I gray out India because we're not quite sure where India is going to land yet. But let's do some math together and see what you think. The gross domestic product of the United States, which is the summation of goods and services produced in the United States, is about $20 trillion per year. The gross domestic product of the EU, European Union, is about $20 trillion a year. $20 trillion represents about 25% of the world's gross domestic product. So today, the 70th anniversary of the NATO alliance, the transatlantic bridge between America and Europe, you are talking about 50% of the global economy. If you were an economic planner or a military planner, or a diplomatic planner, and somebody said, I will give you 50% of the economic, military, diplomatic firepower, and the rest of the world is fragmented in low teens and single digits, are you interested? (laughs) Of course the answer is yes. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind of the importance of the transatlantic alliance. And at the same level, 
the same level of importance our alliance with Japan and South Korea and Australia and New Zealand. Our treaty allies. Philippines is a treaty ally too, not so much economic muscle as the other nations. And so what I've done there is when you add America's allies, NATO and Asia, you get $42 trillion of gross domestic product against Russia's 1.85, compared to California's 2.1, and China's 12. China and Russia combined about 14 trillion versus 42. If the alliances work together, who's going to win this tussle? But you got to work together. You got to have each other's backs. And there's more to the relationship than just a bottom line. There's trust built up over years. And you can't, you can't put numbers on things like our ability to project power from other people's sovereign territory. America's military, America's way of war is expeditionary. We don't fight at home. In football parlance, all we play is away games. Do we want to change that? You need allies and friends. told you I'm going to end with one slide, and you'll see I have a lot of slides that I'm skipping to get there. Let's talk about this American robustness. On the left-hand side of the slide, I talk about the number of times just in my lifetime where America's sunset has been predicted. Ah, America is a sunset empire. America's best days are behind it. America will never be the leader of the world again starting with when Russia tested the H-bomb and Sputnik in the missile gap and what happened in Vietnam. Remember the misery index of the uh, 1980s when inflation plus unemployment was almost the number 30 when you added those two numbers together? Remember Japan buying America? Oh my God. (laughs) Tokyo was worth more than the entire United States. Well, I got to thinking... How many times has America's sunset been predicted? And it's never happened. So why is that? This is a list of things that are unique to America in that we either are the leader in the bullet or number two. And look at the number of things that are there none of which are this political up and down that we seem to be caught in now, which I might add, as I was talking to some people before the discussion, we've been in times like this many times in American history where the political scene is complex. But look at all these things that America excels in. Our geography, our diverse economy, we're agricultural, we're industrial, we're technical, We're distributed across a huge nation. We are a rule of law nation. The dollar's position. People say the dollar is not what it was. It's going to be replaced as the global currency. And I say, what with? China's not going to let their currency be universally convertible because that cedes too much power from the government. That's one of the ways the government maintains CCP control. The euro? The euro's barely hanging on unto itself. The yen? Pretty impressive currency, but it's too small a piece of the world. There's nothing out there that's going to take the dollar's place. Our wealth of natural resources, that oil and gas one being key. Who now controls the cost of gas and oil? America. Why? Because fracking is an incredibly 
user-friendly way of extracting fuel in terms of being able to turn on and turn off wells. And because of the quantity that we're able to extract, and the fact that oil is a global commodity, everybody inputs into this big tank, and depending upon how much is in this big tank, sets the price of a gallon of gas. As that level goes down, the price goes up. As that level goes up, the price goes down. And who's now turning the sluice valve that determines the level of that tank? The United States of America. Our extensive distribution networks. I I won't go through again all the things on the slide. The takeaway is only America leads in this many aspects of global work. And only America has this number of attributes that allow it to position itself in the world as it is today. And it's not going to change. So America's position in the world, its leadership position in the world, it's always going to be fluctuating. There are always going to be changes. But the changes are going to be on the margin. Because America's position in the world is pretty solid. And when you start understanding some of the issues facing some of the competitors right now, I'd bet on that list. And that's not meant to be American chest beating. That's meant to be a cold, dispassionate look at the way things really are working in the world today. I'm going to stop now and I'll take just a few minutes of questions because I know your time is precious and I do appreciate it. Thank you. This is a reminder to our listening audience that this is a program at the Commonwealth Club of California titled America and the Great Power Competition with Vice Admiral Charles Martolio. As the Admiral said, we'll now take some audience questions. As you see, I have the microphone, so please raise your hands and I'll bring it around. I think we start here. Interesting perspective. I have a couple couple questions. First of all, what do you see as the potential for China gaining increased inroads in Asia effectively by default um, as it makes more investments in, in neighboring countries as it moves up the economic ladder? Uh, the debt caused by belt and ro- by some of the belt and road initiative, uh, initiatives and things like just sheer uh, uh, intimidation, like with the South China Sea. The second issue. Well, let me let me answer your oh, first question first. Uh, th- those are all great points, and they are all things that clearly bear watching and noticing the trajectory that they're on. Everything that you just mentioned two or three years ago, did appear to be an unstoppable juggernaut. That is not the case today. That doesn't mean that Belt and Road is falling apart. Belt and Road is going along fine. Belt and Road is is the Chinese leadership's strategic plan to build a infrastructure network that links together everything from the west tip of Europe to the eastern tip of Asia. It's an incredibly ambitious and expensive plan. And it's incredibly China-centric. And other nations have figured that out. So they're beginning to demand a little bit more from China in return for their ability to cede some of their interests to the economic power that Belt and Road may bring to their region. So I would say it's a work in progress. There's no definitive answer at this time. Okay, the, the, the second issue is what is, how do you see what appears to be a weakening of the Atlantic Alliance with the administration policies, China's growing inroads, uh, including through Belt and Road, and uh, more nationalistic governments being um, um, elevated in particularly eastern part of the EU. Yeah, that, that's another great question. And there is an element or more than an element of truth in everything that you said. It is concerning to an internationalist like me 
that there does appear to be a weakening, not a fracturing, but a weakening of the alliances that, my sense, many people here think are so important to the future of the world. Having said that, I sort of go back to you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs that we all learned in high school. You know, right after having oxygen to breathe is security from being eaten by other animals. And this economic dimension that is so attractive in dealing with China is superseded as soon as your security is threatened. And we do see a dichotomy that's relatively new in this epoch where the economic interests of nations and the security of interests of nations go in different directions. And so that's what we're trying to come to grips with now. But in the end, when your security is threatened, you tend to turn to who can provide that security the best. And so what you see is you see perhaps some pulling away or pulling back or negotiating strategies on the part of America to pressurize some of the allies to do more for the, alli- for the alliances. I would argue that that's probably reasonable. I'm not sure I agree with the tactic, but the strategic end is correct. At the same time, it is, it is so important that those alliances be protected. And you see that even among, even among some of the, uh, the nationalist uh, movements uh, rising in uh, Eastern Europe. And I say that because I really do believe that Russia and China have played their hand about 10 years or 15 years too early. Because America and America's friends were pretty close to unilaterally disarming in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, plus 10 or 15 years. There was no threat out there that warranted this massive uh, investment in security. Russia going into Crimea, China doing what China is doing in the South China Sea and other parts of the world— kind of been a wake-up call that the world is not this safe and wonderful place that we sort of envisioned. And even in Eastern Europe, where where you see some of this hardcore nationalism redeveloping, some of our closest allies right now, the people that are closest to America and and have the deepest hooks into NATO in terms of interest and uh, uh, providing capacity for NATO, uh, are the Eastern Europeans goes back to security trumping the economy. Hi. Uh, When it comes to Russia, if they choose to cross the line at some point, will Putin tolerate getting his hand slapped by the U.S. and its allies, or is it going to be the start of something um, potentially much bigger? That's a tough question to answer because there's just not enough specifics in the question. I really do believe, one, that NATO will respond if a NATO nation is invaded, even under the guise of something that is uh, little green men or looking to preserve uh, Russian expats living in that nation. There are there are national borders that NATO, the NATO members, 29 sovereign nations have signed and said, we will defend each other if any one of us is attacked. I think President Putin understands that. I think President Putin will do everything that he can to make that periphery of Russia as complex and unstable as he can get away with without going over that red line of threatening and threatening or attacking a NATO nation, because that would be a bridge too far. We've uh, reached the point in our program with time for only one more question. But I, I think the Admiral will be around a little bit after the program if you want to talk talk a bit more with him. So I'll bring over the microphone and then I'll conclude the program. Um, well, you kind of mentioned at the beginning that the whole, I guess, the grand goal of this great game is initially to get security, which will then lead to prosperity. Um, between China and the United States, it kind of seems that the nuclear capabilities of both still 
mean that mutually assured destruction applies. It doesn't really seem that China is going to launch an invasion of the United States anytime soon or vice versa. You just mentioned that the United States dollar is still going to kind of be the world's currency moving forward. Is it that important that we view the China-U.S. relationship as one of great power competition, or could it be viewed as one of great power cooperation moving forward? Areas where your interests overlap, clearly you want to cooperate. But make no mistake about President Xi's intent to become the preeminent power of the world and to exercise that power through technological superiority, economic superiority, diplomatic superiority. And if the West is willing to accede to President Xi, then that's fine. My sense is you don't need to go to war in order to not let him fulfill his desire. You need to be firm. You need to be economically sound, you need to be diplomatically wise, and you need to be a military with deterrent capabilities that have the right capabilities at the right level of readiness, at the right location, and the national will to use them if deterrence fails. And if you can build those building blocks you can preclude China from achieving its most nefarious goals while at the same time preserving what you want and reaching an accommodation with China. That's what we're trying to do now is to reach an accommodation where we don't set up these competing spheres of interest where you can still work together in 80 or 90% of the issues that you face together, and you isolate issues like Taiwan, the South China Sea, and you work those separately in separate and you don't yield on them, but at the same time, you don't let them drive the relationship. Of all the issues that I mentioned, the most dangerous from a Chinese perspective, from a Chinese-U.S. perspective, is the island of Taiwan. That is something where... The potential is the greatest, and in Chinese culture, President Xi cannot let Taiwan become independent. And we just have to remember that. Good question. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate your time, and I appreciate your interest. Our thanks to Vice Admiral Charles Martolio, who spoke to us this evening about America and the Great Power Competition. We also thank our audience here for your thoughtful questions and our listening audience. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California in its 116th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned.